Hello and welcome to the Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Robertson, joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're rejoined by one of our OG special guests. So, Joe, would you like to reintroduce yourself? Hello, yes, I'm Joe Scrabbles, uh, previous, well, no, currently of IGN, previously of being Matthew's underling. Uh, so yeah, hello. That's right. Thank you for having me back. I'm very excited. Oh yeah, of course. If there's like a back page word cloud, Joe Scrabbles is in there somewhere. Oh, um, after last so. week's episode, I was all over it. It was great. I was delighted. To, uh, <laughs> I mean, I as as you guessed correctly on the episode, Matthew, I was deeply embarrassed to hear you say nice things about oh. me for so long. But it was also good, good. great. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've been enjoying since my last appearance on the podcast just hearing you both turn into increasingly memed versions of yourselves just like these <laughs> these strange cartoon character versions of, of samuel and matthew that have like appeared and loom large over every episode it's great <laughs> yeah it's um it's funny because um people get into certain in jokes and then kind of repeat those back at us mm. until we kind of need to shake it off a little bit so we actually haven't <laughs> spoken about sandwiches for quite a while now probably in any detail because we're we became a bit self-conscious of that. So we're waiting for the kind of like uh, the meme meta to shift again um, to whatever's next. Look, um, so yeah. I see, I'm, I'm not talking about sandwiches because it's a, kind of an emotionally raw topic for me <laughs> because the guy who runs into Meso retires this Thursday. Oh my God. Oh shit. Um, and so it's going to be quite, a, quite an emotional moment, I think. He, you know, he's, he's passing it on to some other people who are going to continue it exactly as it is, but... He's a master. He's a true sandwich artisan. So. That's tough. I'm going to make sure I go there all four days this week then before he's gone and then attend his leaving party if he has such a thing. Um, <laughs> Joe, jo, how's it going generally? Like, it's been a year since we had you on for the best 3DS games episode and you, you are definitely um, partly responsible for us finding an audience, which we really appreciate. So um, how's things how's things been for you of late? Oh, very good. Sorry, you've really thrown me off by saying that I'd be responsible for part of your audience. That seems absurd to me. I, I think you were very good before I was on it, but it's kind. Um I'm good. It's, you know, the the world continues to be exactly the same as it was. So I have I have nothing work-wise to update you on, but you know, <laughs> it's uh it's all going well. The news continues unabated, uh unrelenting and unmerciful to, you know, a social <laughs> life. But otherwise, good. it's great. Isn't that now the official motto of IGA? It is unmerciful, unrelenting, unabated. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what we go for. Um, because everyone always asks what the uh, what the acronym's about, so we're just going to change to Triple U. Um, see how yeah. that see how that goes for us for a bit. That's good. Yeah, no, all I do now is play Elden Ring. I have I barely play games because that game is the only thing I I think about. Uh, so yeah, oh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Is it? Are you still enjoying it, or are you kind of getting this sort of like this is going on for too long feel now that a few of my sort of friends on Twitter have been talking about? No, I truly I, I have not stopped loving it. Um, I'm I'm kind of. I feel like I haven't hit... I keep seeing people go, oh, the end game's a bit of a slog. But what I'm doing to, you know, counteract that is not going anywhere near the end game and continuing to find more and more things to do. Um, it's kind of turned into sort of an episodic game for me now. I'm treating it like <laughs> I go on and I go to one dungeon that 20 hours ago made me feel like I was going to be sick and then go in and shoot <laughs> everything with my new big laser. Uh, and then finish it and turn it off and go, uh, I have treated this game the way I want to do it. Um, so you're a sorcery boy. I'm a big sorcery boy. It feels such... It's, I know everyone's like, you can play Souls games exactly how you want to. As long as it works, it works. But it does feel like cheating. Like, <laughs> basically, <laughs> I have a big laser and a potion that means I can fire that big laser for about 10 seconds without stopping. And it is just ridiculous. I love it. 
Fantastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, for me, I've, I've basically done the same thing I do with all From games, which is I will play a melee class because this is the way it's probably meant to be mm. played with dodge rolling and such. And then 20 hours in, I've sort of just like hit an iceberg and stopped stopped playing it entirely. And that's happened on, on about uh, five different games now. So um, that's on me, frankly. Mm. I, but, do, uh, I do find it very funny, like just the idea of my character, the sort of role play in my head is he's this guy who like is constantly acquiring like near mythical swords and looking at them and just sort of chucking them over his shoulder because they're just useless <laughs> to him he can't even pick them up so he's just like oh right see you later we'll come back to that if i ever decide to rebirth myself <laughs> from the baby lady in a castle that i met um but for <laughs> now <laughs> i'm just gonna shoot one spell forever <laughs> matthew should we address the fact that the patreon launched and did really well should we like talk about that? I, I kind of like thinking, what's a good way of saying we've got a little pile of money now? Like, and I just couldn't quite theory craft that in my head. Um, so, well, I think you've done it. You've done it very uh, aptly, ably there. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we um, set a six hundred pound stretch goal. We blew through that in one day before the podcast officially launched because a listener went and found the Patreon before it was actually meant to be live because <laughs> I was testing some RSS gubbins. So we sort of soft launched it. And then I was scrambling to kind of get all the different bits on there. Um, but then it's um, it's since made more than twelve hundred pounds, cool. which we're amazed by. So anyone at the XL tier has now unlocked like twenty four episodes over the next year. So two extra episodes a month, which is really really good. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I'm feeling great. I mean, obviously I'm feeling great. I'm trying to be not too obnoxious or smug about it. I was going to make a clanking of jewels sound or something <laughs> in the background. Um, yeah, I can't I can't really believe it. Really, not just being sort of. Um, humble and self-effacing when i when i say there was a good chance this was going to totally crash and burn you know i've seen plenty of good people do stuff on patreon and it not not land or not really work for them and i was fully prepared to be really embarrassed about it and for it to become a big running meme in the podcast about what a disaster it was it was going to be the new i don't know wii u of patreons or something (laughs) but um yeah luckily that hasn't happened yeah so it's crowns all round baby Indeed, we can offer to pay our contributors as well now. So, Joe, if you want forty quid, just uh, just shout. We'll send over to you. Oh, can That's I have one like, of your uh... can I have one of your crowns instead? <laughs> they sound lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, Joe, as someone who's been kind of like who listens to the podcast, I assume. Mm. I mean, I don't have that expectation that you you must listen to it. You know, I am it... religious in my listening to the podcast. So. Shoot. Wow. Any other kind of observations you wanted to pull out from the last year? I don't think we've done a draft the first time you came on. So mm. that's all kind of emerged. Like, do you have any thoughts on the overall shift in formats? Just kind of curious to hear some outside perspective on the kind of nonsense within, you know? Uh, the drafts in particular, I've realized that almost every single time I disagree with the majority of the audience. Every time a result comes in, I'm like, well, that is just wrong. Um, so <laughs> and that's not me biasing to one or one or one or the other of you. It's just uh, for whatever reason, I will always choose the wrong side. Um, I've enjoyed uh, the, the slow shift into what will become a Fleetwood Mac style breakup between the two of you at one day where you have to stand <laughs> in separate areas of the stage to do your giant live shows that you'll have to do. Um, <laughs> that's that's going to be good when one draft inevitably results in a powerful rift. Uh, that will be great. <laughs> There was one, there was definitely one which was much like spicier, which I felt like was on the cusp of turning bad. <laughs> I think was I, that 
Xbox GameCube, baby? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it was. I think it's when I dismissed the Xbox. <laughs> like, we had to really pull that one back. And we definitely thawed as the episode went on. Luckily, the healing was done in episode yeah. with that one, I think. It was amazing. Like, that was listening to you in real time like realizing your mistake it was kind of incredible like every single game that came out you were like oh yeah that was actually really good yeah just hearing the ice get chipped away from your cold heart (laughs) it was great that's good that's good to hear yeah it's um that one was it was also right before i started at frontier so i was like oh if that goes wrong it's gonna be bad and it went well but at the time i thought this is this could like completely crash and burn. So I was I was more tense than usual. And then Matthew was like, "Fuck this console that has Panzer Dragoon Auto on it." And I was like, "I'm not having that, <laughs> frankly, sir." And it kind of like shaped shape, shape the tone from there. So Joe, we've just been covering uh, 2012 this past week, as you listened to. Um, so you came up like you um uh, like we discussed. Do you have any kind of like memories of that that early kind of period from uh, listening to Matthew talk about working with you? Mm, I mean, it was mainly the the thing that really sticks out to me about the Wii U and so I came on it can't have been much more than like a month or two before the Wii U arrived correct me if I'm wrong Matthew I have yeah that's right I think that's right and so my main memory of that really early period was I think we may have touched on this last time just not ever seeing the Wii U like we knew it existed but no one had one and the first time we saw it was some bizarre like 505 published farming game where they brought one into our office. And the only reason we asked them to come in is because we knew they had a Wii U. And so we were just like, it was quite disingenuous. That's so shameless. It was quite disingenuous, to be honest. But like, we were like, yeah, guys, come in. Show us your like <laughs> mobile game knockoff that you're releasing on launch day so that we can finally see what the hell this console is going to be. Because I think they were the first people we knew who had the operating system on it, which is wild. Yeah. Because there's always, yeah, the, the rush in those early days is like, when can you get a unit in the office to take photos of it? Because mm. you obviously want to do your own in-house photography so you can start using it. So, yeah, I think we did like whatever. We debased ourselves. What we should um, have done is expensed <laughs> a lunch and just had someone come in and take pictures of their unit <laughs> while they were out or something. We could have we could yeah, have been sneakier about yeah. that. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was trying to remember like how it actually came in because I'm pretty sure we didn't get like a... There was eventually a debug, wasn't there? Well, yeah, so we got was. we got a debug that didn't have the operating system on it. So we didn't know what Miiverse or the Plaza or any of those like weirdo menu elements w- would look like. Uh, that's right. And we had this debug. Again, I, I don't know what stories I told last time, and I apologize. But the, the thing that really sticks out to me is the debug had menus that were useless I don't know where this is probably breaking some like decade old NDA, but oh, no. like, it's, it's all dead. Now. Yeah, like there was a menu on it. We, we we were just clicking everything in there just to see if it would get us somewhere. And I distinctly remember us turning on this one menu that brought up a blue screen with a floating 3D model of a teapot. And it didn't Oh yeah, that's right. And it didn't do, it didn't do anything. Like it wasn't it wasn't like the PlayStation like showing you like the rendering power of it like the dinosaur demo or anything. It was just a floating teapot. And I couldn't work out if it was a joke or if it was like a, a placeholder or something and they never got rid of it. The the teapot menu was there till the day we through that debug Wii you in the trash or whatever we did with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was very that's, strange. That's if only they'd included the teapot in the retail units, that may have changed the fortune. I mean, if they just secretly... You know like you know how Nintendo consoles will sneak into the music, like bits of the Fairy Fountain theme or like Tataka's theme and stuff? Like if they'd just hidden the teapot menu somewhere as like an urban myth, 
That would have been amazing. Yeah. They could have done some weirdo stuff with that. Um, yeah, that and yeah, it, it would be much more fun to boot up your Wii U if you're like, well, today I get to see the teapot again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, on, A water's teapot. <laughs> honestly, most, most of my memories of early Wii U are like like turning my brain off from the fact that, you know, like there's a warning sign in your brain of like something's going wrong with this thing. And I, I'm in my first job, like just having a lovely time trying to trying to enjoy myself as much as possible. But you do have these moments where you look back and you're like, oh yeah, you could see that things were going wrong. Like one time I went into preview. Oh, it was something like, was Wii U play a thing? Like a mini game collection, but not Nintendo Land. I, I can't, it was something along those lines. I can't remember what it was called. Not Game & Wario? Maybe? No, it was it was me-based. Um, and it had like a dude in like a, a like a sort of ringleader's costume on the front cover. I oh yeah, it was a bit like, it was a bit like Mario Party, but with me. Yes, yeah, something like that. And I remember going into Nintendo's office in Windsor to see it, like to review it, but from like a, an earlier build. And they were basically like, don't worry, it's feature complete, everything's in there, you can come and play it, there's just... And they kind of alluded to, like, you just have to play it at the office for reasons that we can't really explain to you. And when I got there, a PR took me aside before I went in the room, and it's kind of like... <laughs> you know when you see someone in a TV programme about to go and see their badly burned relative? <laughs> they're like, before you go in, you have to know this isn't... There's something wrong that you need to see. Uh, and And it was... They were like, the PR was just like, you can't write about this. And I promise it wasn't, this doesn't change the game at all. But um, none of the me's have heads. And you go- <laughs> <laughs> and so we were going in. It was me and I think Craig Owen, who was on Edge at the time, or writing for Edge at the time, and now is um, High Flying Script Man. Uh, and um, yeah, we went in and just... It was so eerie, like that some bit of the code wasn't connecting user profile me's <laughs> to the me's in the game, and it rent it just did it so that they had costumes but no heads. So it was like floating Fantastic. hats all over the place. It was astonishing. It was so weird. Um, yeah, it, like again, they should have kept that in. It, we party you would have been better with genu- it. That was we party you. I genuinely was saying this, uh, like in it, when we were there, like going. This would be really funny if you left this in. You realise, like, this should be a hidden moat. This is just should be another teapot. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my Wii U memory is based very much on, um, yeah, just <laughs> disasters happening and me smiling through them. It was great. So we've got a floating teapot and some headless uh, me's. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, like, Wii U's launch sort of summed exactly. up there very nicely. Oh, that's good. Do you good. remember when we had to play the, um, the games at the Wii U launch mm-hmm. and Chandra was presenting it? And we were basically like practicing for like, it was almost going to be like our own little E3 presentation mm. where we were doing like live demos. Do you remember that? Yeah. Was this in, was, was that in HMV on Oxford Street? Yeah. Yeah. God, I really, yeah. that, that really blocked that event out of my head. Yeah. Chandra like volunteered himself to like host the Wii U launch at HMV because mm. people who don't know Chandra, he's a bit of a, bit of a showman. Yeah, so we ended up having, you know, a bit like how you hear at E3, everyone practices the demos mm. to do, like, live on stage to make the game look really good. We were having to do that. I think it was just uh, Nintendo Land. Yeah. We were, like, demonstrating, 
And so we, we were off to the side playing like behind a curtain while sort of Chandra kind of pranced around on a catwalk. Um, and they and they beamed our footage out to the shop. That's very much a description of the early early days of O&M of, of, of my period. Yeah. It's us behind a curtain while Chandra does all the showmanship. He is very much like the Wizard of Oz frontman. You know, he's the big, strange, mysterious presence that, that everyone meets. But yeah, we're all madly behind the curtain peddling away. Um <laughs> Yeah, and just like, I think, because at that point, it had already sort of been decided, I think, that we wasn't going to be, like, massive. Either. I think, it, you know, on the day it went on sale, there wasn't, like, a huge buzz around it. Yeah. So just having to do this slightly kind of low-energy launch event and just thinking, I'm so glad, like, we're not on stage doing this. Um, there will be no evidence of us on GamePress.com in, in yeah. 15 years. <laughs> I know that you're a big monster hunter guy and games that are a bit like monster hunter guy yeah. so dragon's dogma mm. uh that's a favorite of yours mm-hmm. um i think you've written a feature on it for ign i believe i have um, yeah. where you spoke to the director so a massive game for you didn't come up in best games of 2012 we did mention this is a big joe scrambles mm. game we've we've got to ask you about it like um why were we wrong not to have it on our list well i mean first and foremost uh you've missed a key progenitor of the strand genre so that's a, that's a big <laughs> miss from you um it's, uh, it's, uh, i mean dragon's dogma is i i totally understand why people wouldn't click with dragon's dogma i just think that that's a serious failure of imagination um it is it's it is the for those who don't know it is a a western style uh open world rpg with a very traditional sort of medieval fantasy aesthetic or at least on the on the surface it is um it's goblins and dragons and you know bows and arrows and all that stuff um but it was made by uh itsuno who who's most famous for kind of leading on much of the devil may cry series and it comes with this like truly truly bizarre set of choices like you can climb almost every enemy in the game so what this was designed for is like there's a big ogre you climb up it and you stab it in the eye but you can do that to like passing wild boar like you can climb on a boar's back and like shimmy over it like a little monkey uh, and ride it around um you can pick up like almost any npc and throw them so you can just throw people off cliffs um and and so, and it had like it had real sort of like line in the sand cho- like design choices like nighttime is basically hard mode for the game you go around in the daytime and everything's fine as it's turning to night you're like oh my god i have to get to a f- town so that you know the goblin hordes or the ghost <laughs> armies don't come and slaughter me in my you know while i'm trying to get to sleep um and and most notably, it had this thing called the pawn system, which I will say again is the progenitor of the strand genre, which was you you didn't just create your own character. You also created a second character who was a pawn, who in the lore of the game is like this soulless rift creature who <laughs> follows you around um, and can be sent or can be hired by other players in their games to act as a party NPC. Uh, and then we'll do stuff with them and can if you've done quests that pawn will give hints about those quests to people doing them for the first time if they're using your pawn um, and then when they come back to your game they bring treasure from the other people's games so it's kind of this like asymmetrical it's not multiplayer but it's 
playing it's helping other people through your choices and your like creations Ooh. which is mm. really genuinely extremely cool and uh, like there hasn't been much that's sort of gone along those lines since the other thing to mention about dragon's dogma is i think a lot of people get to the end credits and they were like well you know i killed the dragon and got my heart back which is the story <laughs> not realizing that after the credits there is like an entire other game that is way, way weirder. And, like, I, d I, I mean, I don't know how far I want to get into spoiling the game, but, I mean, let's just say Matthew's obsession with killing God uh, is very much, um, <laughs> very much reflected in the ending <laughs> of Dragon's Dogma, and then some. It is absolutely wild. Wow. It, it's, it's the Kirby of RPGs. It, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what we should be saying. I mean, like... To give you a sense of this, like the, the level of madness to which it goes after the credits, and this is like right after the, the end credits, the main capital that you spend loads and loads of time in in this world, a giant crack appears in it and leads to an infinite rift of monsters that you have to fight your way down in order to eventually meet God. Like it's it's completely insane. Um, and it, it it feels like it was written by like, 16 different people who didn't know what all the others were writing they just had like a general world building document and they were like right go off do whatever you want and then they just jammed it all together uh, and it's just like it's truly i think it's genuinely magnificent like everything i've said makes it sound insane and bad it's also like a a wonderful class-based rpg with some really interesting mechanical ideas about like you'll start as a sorcerer or a rogue or a or a uh, you know a guy with a big sword um but you can then subdivide those classes and turn into other things so like you can become a magic archer which basically turns into like a target painting shoot em up or you can become like an ultra sorcerer whose <laughs> whose uh, spells will take like 30 seconds to cast and you just have to not be hit during that time. But if you get to the end of that, you literally pull meteors out of the orbit of the planet and throw <laughs> them at people and stuff. It's 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 just the, it's just so many ideas in one thing. I absolutely loved it. The the sorcerer class in this isn't it a little bit like the the magician character in Devil May Cry Five? Yes, yeah. So because who you're kind of like you're very frail yourself, but you see so you sort of avoid combat, but summon all this mad stuff to happen. Yeah, exactly. Like there there is a real I, and I actually spoke to Itzino about that when the new Devil May Cry came out. I was like, is this a Dragon's Dogma reference? And he was like. I mean, not explicitly, but I do like it. <laughs> so, right. so it does feel like they kind of he is sort of living out some extra Dragon's Dogma ideas there. Um, there were some pretty so, some pretty big rumors about a Dragon's Dogma two coming down the line, and I really hope it's true because I just want to see more of like him playing in that space. He seems so excited by being really right. weird um, that mm. I'm just I'm delighted by. I've just started playing this on my Switch. Mm. Um, the switch port, which I think is pretty decent, actually. Yeah. Like, I think it, it, it holds up well. It looks nice. Um, and, you know, I've only ever really known Dragon's Dogma through what you've told me about mm. it. I think there's quite a lot of Elden Ring in Dragon's Dogma. There really is. Like, it, it, like the vibe of it. Yeah. Considering that people were, like, absolutely losing their shit over Elden Ring, like, never, nothing ever like it. When I was playing it, I was like, this is, like, aesthetically, it's quite similar. Like, in the, the, the way the open world is kind of structured, the pawn system is very very similar to the ashes mm. in Elden Ring like it's it's not 
not worlds apart. It's also it's it's a game that resists sticking stuff on your map and more gives you kind of you know horizon based landscapes to look at and go well I kind of want to see what's over there and it rewards you for going places but it also will completely fuck you up <laughs> if you go certain directions without checking like I very mm. very early on in that game I remember that there is a there's a set of woods and in those kind of games you always go looking in the woods and then there's just a chimera in there that's like 300 levels higher than you. And you're like, well, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's, it's also one of the, those early games, kind of Breath of the Wildy, where you can go and fight the final boss straight away. Like you can walk into the tunnel where the final boss is and see and have a go. And it's all these little ideas that I think have become more and more prevalent in mainstream RPGs in the last few years, where it, it kind of feels like they were throwing a lot of stuff at a wall and seeing what stuck and... Some I, I genuinely think it was quite hugely influential, just quietly. No one wants to make another Dragon's Dogma, but they don't mind stealing a few bits of it. Yeah, oh. it's it's a very cool thing. Wow, so glad I asked about that. Like we're half an hour into the podcast. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Like um, you know, otherwise I don't know if that game would have come up. Otherwise, so I'm glad we could ask uh, somebody genuinely loves it. Mm. Here's the question though, Joe: mm. What's better, Dragon's Dogma or Fluidity Two? Oh. That's my question to you. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me Dragon's Dogma or Binary Domain, which is another one that I was I was very happy to see come up. Um, I have never played Fluidity Two, so I wouldn't possibly like to comment. Um, but yeah. It's, uh, I do not like the hard ride that fluidity comes in for in this podcast. <laughs> for a game, for a game that only appears because we're championing it, it gets a really rough time. But <laughs> half of it is you, Matthew. Like <laughs> last week, you were going. You literally said, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have put fluidity two in this list." I know. I just I, we've got to stop doing it. <laughs> like if I was from Curve, I'd be like, "Oh, brilliant!" Oh, oh wait, again. No. <laughs> yeah. Somehow that series has come up like three times, and yeah, it ends with it being kicked for whatever reason. So uh, rough time. Um, Joe, you posted a very good picture of yourself with a Steam Deck. So I have to ask because like, I'm still on the waiting list. How, how's that treating you? Is that is that fun time for you at the moment? Uh, honestly. I have almost exclusively played Vampire Survivors on it, which will come up later <laughs> in this podcast. Um, it's a very weird console. I'm not sure I actually think it's good. Like mm, it's, I, it's put it this way: Vampire Survivors at the end gets kind of wild, and the Steam Deck cannot handle it. Which it's a you know it's a pretty simple pixel art game, which slightly worried me. It's also just it's a little bit fiddly. Like you can really tell the payoffs that are having to happen for it to also be a PC. Like, it feels... Everything feels just, like, a little bit more tricky or annoying to get to than I would like it to be. Um, mm, I think sorry. it's I think it's a really neat thing, and I th do think I'll use it quite a lot. But it does feel like... I think there will be a lot of people buying this as a handheld console, and I think they will be surprised by the innate limitations of... Well, it's it's all it's kind of the limitations created by being so open, because you know I look at my Steam library and it's like thirty something games of my hundreds are actually great to play on Steam Deck and will work straight out of the box. And I've tried a few others, like I turned on what was it, Doctor Langaskov and the Emerald and the Tiger or whatever that's called. <laughs> okay, um, just because I've been meaning to go back to it for a while, and I was like, and it's a game that's about you know it's twin stick control. It's just looking at stuff and walking about. And it's fine once you get in the game, but it's things like the menu, like when you use the touchscreen, the cursor appears in the wrong place and things, and you're just like, this feels really strange that this doesn't 
work quite right. And then having to go into a menu to change the control scheme to be like, okay, now it will work. It's all just like one mm. step constantly where I'm like, oh, I just have to fiddle about and make this work. But when it does work, it's amazing. Your appetite for that one step is kind of what defines like PC gamers yes. against console gamers. Yeah. And I, I think that I think that is true. I just think that when you are playing on something with such a familiar form factor, it's kind of jarring mm. to have that put in front of you occasionally i don't know maybe i i'm possibly being a bit harsh i think it's a very clever thing and i i will say those little trackpad things that are meant to simulate mouse movement feel amazing like they they have this beautiful little rumble under your thumb and as the uh as the console's turning on while it's booting that turns on you can just like muddle about with it and it feels great so i will (laughs) i will say that it's it's feedback it's lovely yeah, it's it's quite a confusing thing. I'm not sure I'm sold on it, but I do like having one. Oh, lovely. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question, Joe, before we take a quick break mm. and um, get to the subject of this week's episode. Because I know you're a big Remedy guy. Um, oh. Next week, we're doing like a Max Payne Games episode. So I was curious, how do you feel about the fact that they're remaking Max Payne 1 and 2? I, I, I saw that while I was a little bit drunk, and I lost my mind. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> I was so excited. I, I, did you do a bullet dive through the nearest window? I did, yeah. And I, I did that thing in Max Payne 3 where he like jumps into a bookcase and crumples up like a strange little <laughs> physics boy. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I, I think it's amazing, amazing news. Like Max Payne 1 and 2, I think have actually aged quite well. Like they still feel quite nice to play. But the idea of playing them in that Northlight engine that Control was made on and and just getting a sense of what like a really modern version of those like grimy noir new york locations will look like like that you you mentioned it briefly in a maybe it was last week or a, another re- recent episode but you mentioned the sort of um theme park section of max Payne 2 and just the thought of that in in kind of control looks is very very exciting to me and i love that mm. you know there's been a lot of complaints about rockstar's direction in recent years if this indicates that maybe with the other stuff they have, they could go in a more like Lucasfilm games direction and sort of license out those things to good people, I would be mm. really into that. So so I hope this signals, you know, Rockstar's beginning to open up to like, well, someone else could could play around with the things we're not going to touch. Yeah, I think it's I think it's tremendously Ooh. exciting. Oh, great stuff. we got to get you on more episodes, Joe. You always slot in uh, so yeah, perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Oh. like endless takes machines. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I that's speak good. too much. That's the problem. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. We're constantly trying to disguise how tired we are. So um, <laughs> you, you talking does that quite nicely. Um, <laughs> let's take a quick break then and we'll get into uh, this week's subject, which is the Indie Games Hall of Fame Volume 2. So uh, we'll be back in there after some music. Welcome back to the podcast. So, the Indie Games Hall of Fame Volume 2. Our last entry was about half a year ago. You may remember that someone called Catherine Castle, don't know much about that person, but, you know, added five games. We, Me and Matthew each added five games, and we're going to do another, that format again, basically. So Joe's got five games, I've got five games, so has Matthew. So 15 more games to add to this canon. I'll tweak them out at some point. Um, I've got them written down in a handy list here, so none of our listeners have to go through and listen back to them and write them down for us. We've kind of got like a, fr- a kind of like unpaid labour force going on in our Discord <laughs> at the moment, and I'm, I'm not feeling great about it, I'll be honest. Um, 
But Joe, because <laughs> um, I think you specifically mentioned to Matthew you'd be interested in doing one of these mm. episodes. What's your kind of like, I guess, angle on indie games? What's your relationship with them? They were very much like my... They feel like when you're getting into music as a kid, you kind of, when you start finding those things that are, it sounds very tired, but when you get into the stuff that the other people you don't know necessarily don't know, and you can start sharing that, and it's really exciting. I had the same thing with indie games like a little bit later on, where when they started becoming a little more visible and easier to find, I really got into the idea of like, sort of seeing what people were doing on the fringes of of games games development because you grow up playing you know the stuff that everyone plays and that's great but it's really cool to like i think i grew up at the right time for it as well like i was probably not quite you know formative ages when indie games started becoming a big thing but i was certainly in you know the right period of my life to be like i'm just gonna try everything and see what i can do um and see what's going on and so yeah i've always had a real affinity for it. I think in recent years, I've probably become a little more blockbustery. Maybe that's just down to time and like not having the room to sort of experiment as much with my time. But certainly, mm. I, I'm always keen to see what what like the weirdness that's going on and that will become mainstream at some point. You know, I think I think a lot. Kind of like what we were saying with Dragon's Dogma before. Mainstream developers don't necessarily copy these games wholesale, but they will often see a little mechanic in a successful one and be like, "Oh, we could do something with that." And I, I'm always uh, always keen to see that kind of thing going on. Ah, good stuff. More stealth uh, Dragon's Dogma. Um, yeah, 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 episode yeah. chat. That's good. Um, that's the real theme of this episode. Particularly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, 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 it's fine. I look forward to it coming up uh, several more times before the episode is <laughs> yeah. over. That should be good. Um, yeah, I was, I, I was curious. Uh, what shaped your cho- choices this time, Joe? Because I, I found that with them um, picking my five, that um, I wanted to like throw in something that was less obvious, but I ended up picking some fairly obvious ones too. Is that, how did you kind of approach that uh, that on the uh, selection side? Honestly, listening to the first uh, Indie Games Hall of Fame, Catherine's choices in particular were like spookily close to the things I would have naturally picked, like including Hold Down, the uh, the Brick Breaker game that that she brought up, which is a game I have probably played more than any other in the last three years like i was i am right. i continue to be obsessed with hold down so what shaped it a, bit, a lot was going did uh, did Catherine pick this one yeah okay i'll move on to the next <laughs> thing um what also what shaped it i really didn't want to just do recent stuff um there's a couple of well there's there's one very recent and a few kind of last five years ish um but i think there is I really wanted to kind of give a bit more of a like a, a broad swathe of of time for these indie games rather than just go like what what have I played recently that I think's good and these are all the ones that I think really stick out to me as like I could go back to this today and have a really good time with it all over again mm. yeah for sure um, yeah you've got some great games here I'm excited to hear about how about you Matthew how did you approach this process this time uh, I don't know. They all seem to be. Most of them are like detective games. Weirdly, um, that's not that weird. No. You know, I've got a, a longer list that I'm kind of picking from. I mean, some of these aren't necessarily like my f- like favorite games of all times. Like, there's a lot of like sort of four star stuff, I'd say. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I try to pick some things that I don't always hear about as much. Um, always nice to come away from these with a a few uh, you know weird and unheard of things. So yeah. Okay, good stuff. Well, let's get into it then. So um, I, uh, I'm i first in the document, so I guess I'll go first. But um, the Stanley Parable I wanted to pick first. So I've been thinking about this more since watching Apple TV Plus' Severance, because <laughs> um, it's kind of like a workplace sort of dystopia uh, game. 
essentially you play a, an office worker called Stanley, a narrator tells Stanley what to do, um, and you can uh, follow that uh, through to the end of the game if you wish. However, there are loads of opportunities to deviate from this path, this kind of first-person, pers- first uh, not quite exploration, first-person narrative game, um, and all sorts of outcomes emerge when you deviate from the path. There's some very meta ones, some very sinister ones, um, and some where you break the game entirely. Um, it was the first game I played on my new PC when I bought it in 2013, so um, it kind of felt significant. I was joining PC Gamer, and I was like, well, okay, what's the hot indie game right now to play? And um, has a new edition coming out very soon, I believe, um, with additional outcomes, which is good. It's almost like a kind of branching story structure in the form of a game, in that like um, you don't really affect the outcome in any meaningful way other than a kind of few basic interactions. So it is kind of like you can sort of see the narrative tree in your head as you're playing it a little bit. Mm. Um, but I still really love it. So, uh, Joe, I imagine you've played this and you have some thoughts on it. I have. I'm really, I'm really keen to see this new version they're bringing out. I think it's called Ultra Deluxe um, because they've sent out a uh, like a, a blast about it recently about the release date, and it had this little nugget in there where he said, I think it was William Pugh that one of the co-creators said, essentially, we were going to release this two years ago, and then we kept adding things, and it sounds like it's either maybe a sequel or like a very much like the big end of remake. Like there is, it's not just an upres. Like I think there's probably a lot more new stuff in there. It feels like it's going to be quite a new version of the Stanley Parable, which I'm super excited about. Like you say, I think the the super interesting thing about Stanley Parable is it's a it it has the the sort of fundamentals of walking simulator or whatever you want to call that genre. But really, it's about not walking to the end of the story, but walking to the end of like a series of different stories that you didn't necessarily know were there the first time around. Um, I think I, I, I really enjoy it. Like, it's a very strange, very funny, um, like, it, it feels extremely uh, early. What do you call them? Tennies? Were they the tens? Um, yeah, it, fe- <laughs> it feels very of that time in a, in a very pleasing way. Um, yeah, I, I really like that game. Yeah, I think it's one of those games. It's just like full of secrets, and um, someone who picks up the pad for the first time to play it, to try it will um, will just not anticipate what's coming. And I have um, shared this with my partner, where she's kind of played through it and seen what it can do, and it's like it subverts expectations immediately. And if you avoid getting it spoiled, it will it will just delight you continually. I think so. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious to, to see that um, uh, the re-release too. Um, Matthew, did you play this one? Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I've played it a little bit. I've never like mined it super deep because I know that you, you know, it almost becomes quite an effort to to get some of the secret stuff in this. There's quite a big, um, isn't there like quite a big time element to some of them in terms of certain things happening at certain times or something like that? Um, and you know, people who go digging for the achievements and whatnot. Um, I'm more taken with the idea that you just like loaded up with Stanley Parable for this new job. Uh, this image of you starting on PC Gamer and you just keep talking about Stanley Parable <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, it's fucking Stanley Parable guy. What's up with that? <laughs> it was a bit like that. It was like, okay. <laughs> it's like, I, They're like, not everything's like the Stanley Parable, dude. <laughs> it's like, I don't just play Halo. I also play Prison Architect. It's kind of that, um, <laughs> that sort of vibe. Uh, so yeah, a, a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I really can't wait to see what this new version's like. Um, I, I would love, I would love to have more opportunities to explore because you can definitely there are like um, the graphs that just map out the entire like path of the game and how you access the different endings. And it's not that complicated to see it all. 
inside a day. So um, yeah, more to discover. Sounds good. So Joe, what's your first pick? Uh, it's called Affordable Space Adventures, and it is uh, predictably a Wii U game. Uh, that I I genuinely consider <laughs> it's the it's Wii the U Wii U game. I I consider this to be like the great lost game of of the Wii U because it's something that will never work on any other format and. Quite frankly, I genuinely think it's the best use of the gamepad that was ever made. Like, better than any attempt that Nintendo made. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, to me, the best moments of gamepad were always when it made the game harder rather than easier. Like, so many people went, put a map or an inventory on it, and it's like, we're simplifying your experience. Whereas, the the moments that really stick with me, the, the two that really stick out to me are, The Wonderful 101 had a section where... On the TV, there was a spaceship flying through a city, and you realised that your characters were on the gamepad on giant buttons, like the piano from Big, that that would um, <laughs> that would move it around. And so you had to jump on these buttons with your team. And it was like the point was that every time you had to move down, you weren't looking at the TV, so you'd have to look back up and be like, "Shit, I'm flying into a skyscraper." Um, and that was amazing. And Affordable Space Adventures blows that up to the size of a whole game. It is a a 2D sort of sort of narrative led like like puzzle platformer except you're a sp- piloting a spaceship and you're just essentially trying to go left to right at all times avoiding hazards the amazing thing being that the gamepad is your cockpit and has a bunch of sci-fi style controls so it's like two different engines an electric engine and a fuel based engine um like various different toggles and switches that get added throughout the course of the game and eventually you're sort of having to micromanage the internals of the tiny little ship on the screen and so it builds all its puzzles around this idea it was made by two sets of danish developers one was a guy called niflas who made the knit or night games i never know how you say it k-n-y-t-t which was sort of narrative platformers always quite weird like a vein of darkness under them, but they were presented very benignly. Um, and then this group of strange guys called Napnock, who made uh, an indie game called Spin the Bottle Bumpy's Party, which was <laughs> very, very weird. Um, like a party game that was extremely physical and kind of used the Wii U more as a like an interactive board game uh, screen rather than anything else. Um and the story was that they were just met over beers and playing games together and started like how w- if if our two sides made a game together what would it look like and it turned into this game and it's just brilliant like it's just a really fascinating little experiment that they've tailored over i don't know 8 to 10 hours and it has this amazing ending that used the meverse which is another reason you'll never see this on anything else um, can I spoil the end of Affordable Space I, I, Adventures? I, I, so I, I was, I was going to say, like, you can still play this game, but the Miiverse bit of it, like, won't work anymore. Yeah. So, like, if you really want to avoid it, and for whatever reason, you can jump ahead two minutes. But yeah, t- tell us, tell us how it uses the Miiverse. So, so the story of this game, it's sort of a dark comedy. You are a you you are a tourist who is being given this spaceship as like a rental to go to a a, a tour a, like a tourist attraction planet. I think it's called Spectaculon. And uh, and the idea is you've been sold a lie and it's actually like a complete nightmare out there. Um, and the entire game is trying to find um, a beacon to send a distress signal back. And when you finally find a working beacon, it goes, it brings up the Miiverse screen and it says, draw your distress 
message. And so you draw it, and then you press send, and then the game ends. I can't remember, there's probably another cutscene as your uh, character's waiting to be picked up. And then it cuts to this sort of like really shitty looking office. Uh, and a printer is just printing out everyone's Meverse distress messages onto an empty floor. And it's clear that this company <laughs> is shut down and all these people are stranded <laughs> on this planet. And it's just perfect. It's such a brilliant use of like the, that system and that idea and, and like a little dark joke to, to put a pin on the end of this great game. I, I love mm-hmm. it so much. And we'll just never see it in the form it was made to be it's a real shame i i would say like if you have a wii u it's it's not going to be killed by that ending being missing and i think it's still a truly brilliant idea um but yeah you you do miss that 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 kind of wholesale like someone buying into every bit of the wii u and and seeing what mm. they can do with it i think it's i think it's really admirable wow well we did say if we hit a thousand pound on the patreon i would get the wii u out and plug it into the big telly go. so um i will i will do that and buy this <laughs> game because matthew's mentioned it before um is this is a big game for you matthew at the time um yeah i joe was very much like the cheerleader for this i mean it was big in that anyone who put like any effort into a wii u <laughs> yeah. exclusive was very important to us on the magazine because there wasn't a lot of that. I looked back. I thought I'd done a review for this, but it came out after the magazine shut down. And it was... So what I'd actually done was a six-page preview feature of it, which is wild. (laughs) Like, that is huge for that magazine. Um, Yeah, we really stuck some effort into it because they gave us quite a generous demo, I think, early on. And yeah, yeah, we really put put some oomph into it. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine there wasn't a... loads of competition for those preview pages. Yeah. Um, just you know, Fair. off the top of my head. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> not so, I'm a... putting the boot in there for no reason. <laughs> That's, true. That's um, absolutely true. They, um, interestingly, I think, I think it was this week. Uh, Nintendo Life did a big affordable space adventures interview retrospective oh. or maybe it just got updated and they did it years ago I, I, you know how the internet's a fucking nightmare for knowing when stuff was actually made <laughs> because everyone updates this their pages but anyway that's that's another topic for another episode and uh he he cited uh steel battalion as a big inspiration because oh, yeah. he was like i love the idea of a massive controller and you know you can't make that that physical peripheral for the wii u mm. but the gamepad sort of is that yeah, I think wow. they called it a heads-down display, which I really love the idea. Like, that's such a silly little joke. Yeah, yeah. it's really fun. So, Matthew, what's your first pick here? Uh, my first pick is Hand of Fate 2, the sequel to the card-dealing RPG, where the big hook of this game is that you're on an adventure, and that adventure um, takes place as you move between uh, playing cards that are on a table. And, and as you land on a card, the event on that card either plays out as a little like narrative vignette where you make decisions, kind of choose your own adventure style, or it might be a fight, and then you'll get whisked into this sort of 3D arena. So if you imagine the story is a, is a deck of cards and they can be shuffled and cards can be replaced, so you don't know what order you're going to be hitting the story events in. And so it's slightly kind of rogue-lighty in that way, in that the kind of the order that you happen upon events can change your fate in terms of you might get some equipment early on or you might hit a shop early on but you haven't done enough cards to earn gold so you can't buy anything special but if the cards are dealt to you in the right order then potentially the game can go can play out very differently i mean hand of fate 2 blows the idea up in in such amazing ways like 
it added basically sort of 22 stories. Each campaign is a little miniature story, which has its like own goal and angle, which keeps it fresh. But as you start each story, you kind of build a deck of narrative cards that are going to be played in that story. So you're trying to sort of set yourself up for the run you want. So if there's a particular weapon you like, you'd make sure that weapon card's in the deck. If you're like, well, I know that that weapon's really expensive. So if I load the deck with like cards where there are games of chance, so I might get gold out of it and so i'll have a better chance of buying that weapon so there is a like a a higher strategic level to what you put in the deck but then obviously once you're in the game itself you're just dealing with how they're dealt to you you know it is kind of a a game of chance i've always loved this game i thought the first one was amazing i thought this was just so complete it's sort of tinged with sadness uh because uh, Defiant Development, who made it, kind of went under a few years after. Or they, they sort of ceased to trade. They didn't go mega bust. Like, they still kind of, um, like, caretake all their games, but they, they, they're not, like, a functioning company anymore. And I never really feel like this found the audience it deserved, um, because, like, mechanically, it's really interesting. I think it does really great stuff with the kind of the card deck-building genre. Um, I think it's got a really, like, wicked sense of humour in that, the cards are dealt by this games master character who you're kind of in competition with and he's he's quite well written and adds some sort of character to it almost like a like a less scary version of inscription you know in that you have this figure who's there kind of goading you um but he's a lot more vocal i may have said this on a previous episode because this was one of my game top 30 games of the last generation if you can remember all the way back then um quite low down on the list um uh, but you know on the list nonetheless i always felt like if that this team had partnered up and made a fable version Mm. i think this game could have been fucking huge because like i say mechanically brilliant tonally it's very similar to fable like it's sort of slightly fairy tale-ish you know, it's it's not like super grim dark. It's not like mega D and D. It's it's very much its own fantasy universe. It has a sense of humour, but I thought if they'd maybe been able to like tie it into something that people were more familiar with, I think this could have found a much bigger audience. The combat's very fably too. You could absolutely and, uh, hear um, Stephen Fry doing that like narrator voice as he, as you do your cards and like I... move through that story. That is such a great shout. And it is a great game. Like, you know, they made a great game and they, you know, they won't get to make another one, sadly, but this one exists. I, I think there maybe is a an even grander version of this um, in some alternate universe. But yeah, it's just, just really top stuff. Absolutely massive. It's on just about everything. Uh, I played it on Xbox, but I'm pretty sure it's on Switch now too. Yeah, I think I'll uh, wishlist that Switch version and come back to it. It's actually half price at the time we're broadcasting. Uh, we're sorry, recording this, but... Um, by the time people are listening to it, it won't be. So that's uh, useless information for me. Very good. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's cool. I'm actually kind of surprised, Joe, that Inscription didn't make your list. Was it just a bit too recent? It, for, for It's one of those there? things. I almost feel like I'd need to quickly check my list. Is anyone from Devolver? No, I almost feel like Devolver stuff is is kind of given such a big platform that I barely think of it as indie now. Like, it's kind of weird. Like, they take in indie developers, obviously, um, and that's possibly harsh, but it just feels like everyone sees that stuff um so it it doesn't feel like you're giving it it doesn't need the airtime i i absolutely love inscription and i love hand of fate too as well um for very similar reasons i think the there's something so pleasing about having a game sort of um tell its story to you through playing the game rather than like moving from beat to beat um it's it's, Mm. it's really nice 
Uh, and mm. like you say, the combat is surprisingly good. Very Batman Arkham in places as well. Yeah. Like it's, it's really, it, it really underpins it nicely. So my second pick is The Sexy Brutal, a time loop narrative puzzle game um, published uh, by Tequila Works, who also, I believe, helped on the art for this game. And you can really tell Tequila Works, of course, who... Uh, made Deadlight and Rhyme, very nice looking games. Mm. Um, this is, I think, we, this has come up on a previous podcast. It's kind of like Reverse Hitman, where it's a time loop. Um, there's a time loop going on basically during this kind of masked party, and you have to save each of these guests uh, from death um, while not being in the same room as them when the um, the, uh, the 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 murder essentially happens. And so that involves kind of manipulating the environment. Um, before they kind of arrive and um, essentially changing the outcome, whether it's like removing the kind of um, magazine from a gun uh, to stop a shooting from happen, that, happening, that sort of thing. And then there is an overarching um, wider sort of like meta story um, connecting all of the different murders together that kind of un- um, kind of reveals itself after when you once, once you reach the end, which take you about six or seven hours. So um, I love um, what I love about this is the sense of style is so confident. Um, there is, I would say, the kind of like uh, Final Fantasy VII almost style diorama um, locations. They feel like Ooh. the interiors in Final Fantasy VII a little bit to me. I can't, I can't quite think of a better way of putting it. Just um, really vibrant and colourful and kind of look like someone's uh, gone and made them for some kind of art art project. Um, lovely to kind of navigate. The characters are very distinctive. And um, yeah, I think it's, uh, while I think like it doesn't entirely land the kind of like larger story, um, the individual moments could be so dramatic and at first it's so overwhelming to be in this mansion and to work out um, what the fuck is all of this different stuff happening you're seeing people move from different rooms and it feels so overwhelming and then you kind of pick it apart piece by piece do you feel like you have um, a complete overview of what is actually going on in this place so um, yeah mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan Matthew you've played this one right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I mean, it's it's just yeah, so so up my street. Um, I remember meeting the developers of this. I can't remember the UK outfit who teamed up with Tequila Works. Their name. Um, uh, I should have written it down, shouldn't I? But I'll find it right they're, now. They're so like, that's, uh... were they X Lionhead? Was that their or X Rare? Yeah, they were. They were like one of the many Guildford mm, yeah. uh, indie studios. Cavalier, sorry. Cavalier, that's right. Yeah, yeah I met. Um, uh, one of them, I believe his name was Charles, at uh, Rezd, because uh, this was an Xbox, um, like, idea Xbox were pushing this quite hard. Um, and this is a very self-serving anecdote. I was like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this game. And he said, oh, you still work for Endgame. I really like that magazine. So, uh, <laughs> was, you know, he's, a, he's, he's, he's obviously good people. Um, and uh, he, made, he made a good game. Um came out uh, quite close to a book I really love, which is weirdly similar, which is The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle uh, by Stu Turton, which is about a, a kind of a, a, a murder mystery in a sort of similar house uh, where uh, the character is stuck in a time loop. I guess the similarities end there, but it, it was sort of noticeable that they were like two of my favourite bits of pop culture from that time, was that game and this game and that book. Yeah, and I agree with you. Like the overall structure of it, I don't think the ending quite lands for me. But I really like, you know, every chapter you're excited to see like what n- new character you're going to meet or like how they die. You know, it's got a real pull through it in that you just want to sort of see what it does next all the time. Yeah, for sure. It's, Joe, I imagine you play this one too. Yeah, I played this. This was like one of those games that I played the entirety of in one small chunk at Christmas one year. It must have been the year it came mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, but as a result, 
I remember loving it, but remember almost nothing of it because you play it so quickly that it like it almost <laughs> didn't have time to sink in. Um, I went back and looked at it recently, just incidentally, and I'd forgotten how like utterly grim some of it is. Like it's really dark considering mm. how it looks, um, which was like a really like kind of took me back and went, oh yeah. That was a horrible game, um, but yeah, just a just a brilliant <laughs> idea, and I I really liked it. when they first announced the kind of concept of that time loop and working through and having to stop things and move on. It sounds quite overwhelming, but it does quite a nice job of sort of parceling out that house and get, you know moving you through mm. it quite naturally, um, which I thought was really good. I totally agree on the ending. I don't think it I don't think it wraps up perfectly by any means, but it's um, it, I think it's quite a special thing. Like it's very. And, and very, you know, prescient of where we got to with time loop games a few years later. Like, it feels very of a piece with mm. those things. Um, did Cavalier ever do anything else? Have I missed, like, their career? No, I don't think they have. I have not seen anything else they've made, so I've no idea if they disbanded or if they're working I on something else. I have a feeling they disbanded. Uh, but I think, there was, I, think they were, I think there was only, like, a couple of them. I think it was two brothers and yeah. maybe a third person. I think they were quite a small outfit. So I think they all just went and got jobs at other studios. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which uh, which has happened with another game on my list actually, where it's like ah, I would love to have seen what you could do if you'd have had another shot. But um, mm. yeah, um, still, um, yeah, a really special thing and uh, perpetually available is it, on like basically everything. I understand the Switch version's a little bit compromised, Matthew. Didn't Catherine play that and say it wasn't like as good as the console ones? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it is a bit bit um, choppy. Good little bit of secondhand uh, sort of info, info there. So, um, Joe, what's your second pick? My second pick, the aforementioned Vampire Survivors, um, a game that came out last year and is super weird. It is, uh, it is a, a, essentially a bullet hell game, but the only thing you control in it is your character's movement. Everything else is automated. Um, and it's sort of uh, like a love letter to power creep in RPGs. It's this... Um, Right. It's this amazing feeling of you start out and you're incredibly weak. You are a pixel art character. It is absolutely brazen in its like rip off of like Castlevania aesthetics, which I love. Um, uh, to the point where I think people thought the guy had stolen sprites at one point, possibly. That I nice. may have made that up. I don't think he has. Um, uh, yeah, it's a. I, I believe it's a one man game, or at least started as a one man game, and then. Um, yeah, the the idea is you are a single tiny character in a big space and you move around and whatever character you've picked has a single weapon that will fire usually every few seconds. Um, and you just get assaulted by bigger and bigger waves of enemies and stronger and stronger enemies for half an hour. And the idea is if you last half an hour, um, death comes along and kills you himself because you're too powerful. Um, but the, the beauty of it is that you are leveling up almost constantly. And every level up either gives you a new item that gives you a buff or a new weapon type. And you get about five of each. And then you can get to positions where you've leveled up a weapon all the way as far as it can be. And then it interacts with another item and evolves into an even stronger weapon. And some of them are just absurd. Like they are designed to be broken weapons where you can essentially stand still and just watch like a thousand enemies a second run into your projectiles and not get anywhere near you. And it's and it's just it, like as I was saying before, it, it, it's crazy enough that like the Steam Deck will literally move to about a frame a second when once you get to the end when you have like five <laughs> different fully evolved weapons all firing a thousand projectiles a second. Uh, it, it's it's just completely absurd, and that's it. It's 
it, it feels like someone who loves that feeling of taking uh, a mechanic in an RPG and making it completely broken. Like kind of what we were speaking about with Elden Ring. Um, like just finding something and turning it into the best possible version of that thing to the point where the game literally can't handle you being that powerful. Um, and I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's a lovely idea. And it's still in early access. I think they got a big update um, last week and they keep adding new characters, new ways to get those characters I think it's up to, I don't know, maybe 20 characters now, all with different types of weapons and different individual mechanics. I found one the other day, just completely by accident, who is, as far as I can tell, just is Bayonetta, to the point where it turns on, like, Bayonetta-style <laughs> chiptune music in the background when you play as her. And, like, it's just wild. Like, it's such a weird game. I love that it exists. Um, yeah, I just I think it's so fun. Do you make any like strategic? You, you said you control the movement. Mm. I've not played this one myself. Do you do you make any like strategic choices? Do you have any options of like what you're upgrading? Yeah. Or so actual... so it gives you every time you level up, it gives you a choice of things to pick from. So you can right. kind of get towards like builds. And as I say, the only way to evolve weapons is to have a component item that goes with it. So you, and you're not told what those things are. So part of the fun of it is like, do you remember that? I, I, what was it called? There was a mobile game that was just about like combining elements to create new elements, and it was like, and it got into this like absurd. Oh God, it was something. Oh yeah, it was like it, it was almost like a play on like alchemy. Or yeah, something. It, it, and it feels a bit like that. You don't know what's going to go together, but you kind of guess. Like, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but you kind of like. Uh, there's a there's a like a special uh one of them is like a bible that floats around you and smacks things in the face and uh you can find another item called an empty tome which gives you cooldown reduction on those abilities but you kind of look at it and you're like well they're two books so if i level them both all the way up will they interact and they do and it's kind of finding like making those tiny little connections and going okay i reckon these will work together um and then it does a really nice way of sort of cataloging. Once you've found that for the first time, the next time it will flag, this will evolve this. And so it kind of gives you the sense that you're like piecing the game together over time. Um, it's, I, I think it's a really interesting thing. And it, it, it's such a good time. Like it's su- it, it is perfect for the Steam Deck performance issues notwithstanding. Like I played it a lot on my computer, but as soon as I got it on a handheld, I just have not stopped. Uh, it is it is basically right. all I've used on my Steam Deck for. Um, it, yeah. it feels like a big indie breakout game. Mm. You know, if it, it feels a bit like when everyone went nuts for Loop Hero yes. um, last year, it kind of has. Oh yeah, I've just not got around to playing it. I keep looking at screens of it and thinking it looks a little bit like um, uh, Treasures Bangayo has a sort of similar vibe where you like you're a mech that fires like a thousand rockets. Mm. And like each rocket has a trail, so the whole screen is just like ah, yeah, chaos. That's where it gets to. Um, I've certainly yeah. se- I've seen people, you know, uh, question whether it's like mechanically deep enough. Uh, and to that, I say, grow up. Uh, it's just <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it is not a game that's designed to be deep or thoughtful. It is just a game. <laughs> about making as many things happen on the screen as possible and watching, you know, skeletons explode. Like, it's it's no, really... No shame. No, it's just lovely. I think it's really, like, comfort food. <laughs> grow up. Amazing. Um, yeah, that's good. Just imagine you in the IGN comments just say, oh, grow up, to every, uh, every response. Um, 
yeah, good stuff. I uh, yeah, I, I've I've seen this break out. Am I right thinking this is free on itch but paid on Steam? Is that how it kind of works? Oh, I don't know. I I paid for it on Steam because I'm a nice boy. <laughs> I have no idea. It might be. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you should you should look that up, listener. I can't have a, I don't have an answer <laughs> yeah. for you. No, it's fine. Um, but yeah, available on itch and Steam, regardless. Mm. And it's only like um, uh, like I think two quid on Steam, something like that. It's like almost no mm. money. So uh, yeah, that's um, well worth a look. Um, definitely sold by the uh, bayonetta plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting to me. Almost no money is very Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like my, that's my new uh, outlook. It's like uh, yeah, but what what used to be. Sort of some money is now almost no money. That's um, how I've, I've moved up the social strata as a result of our £1,200 a month, um, which just ticked up to 1300 while we're recording this. That's ostentatious, isn't it, um, to just bring that up on the podcast. So let's move on. Second pick, Matthew, go. Uh, Dark Side Detective. Have you played this? I have. I was a big fan of it. Um, we've discussed it very briefly on one of the... I think it came up right at the start of one of the Game of the Year episodes. And you talked about how you just got into it for the first time. But it feels very you on the surface. It's like a kind of micro point-and-click adventure in that it's a series of small cases in this spooky town. You play as uh, Detective McQueen and you've got his sidekick, Dooley. Yeah, the cases, they're sort of almost designed to be about 20 minutes to 40 minutes. They're very self-contained. What I love about this game is they've taken the point-and-click game and they've basically stripped out all the stuff you don't really need or care about and boiled it down to just, like, funny dialogue, picking up items and solving puzzles. Like, you don't even control movement. The, the, the character moves between these static screens and stands in the middle, so it's really, really fast-moving because no one really gets any joy, I don't think, out of watching Guybrush walk very slowly across <laughs> ten screens in Monkey Island. Like, that isn't where the pleasure of that game lies. So I feel like they've really just taken out anything boring. It strikes this really, like, nice tone where... You know, it's obviously going for laughs, like it's it's incredibly like machine gun fire in terms of its jokes, but it, it somehow avoids feeling too try hard, which is a problem I have with a lot of modern point and clicks or point and click games that were inspired by your Monkey Islands, that kind of era, is that you get a lot of people who aren't quite as funny and they're just trying to do a kind of a sort of tribute act and I think a lot of people mistake like snark for humour. Mm in point-and-click games is a lot of smarmy heroes. There's basically a lot of um, George Stubbards from um, Broken Sword sort of going around, sort of sneering at everything in the world, and people seem to think that that's a substitute for humour. And this doesn't do that. It's very, very charming. It's got a lot of affection for its world and its characters within it. And so it just feels very kind of pure. It didn't. Nothing in it rubbed me up the wrong way. And because they strip it right back, you can just focus on you know, collecting weird objects, combining them. Like, it's quite silly, but it isn't as totally obscure and impossible as as some bad point-and-click games can be. Um, I think it helps that it's, like, ultra-minimalist. Like, it almost looks like Maniac Mansion or something. It's kind of that level of sort of 8-bit kind of pixels. So it's very, very easy to kind of pass and see what you're meant to pick up. I loved point-and-click games growing up. I thought I was sort of done with it because, like I say, I think the genre became full of, like people trying to do Monkey Island who just weren't up to it and the genre like got very sort of bloated and unpleasant as a result and this is just like about as as good as it gets outside of of those classic games I'd say yeah so have you played both of them now Matthew yeah yeah I mean you could yeah I mean you should play both like they're both you know one is just more of the other both excellent (laughs) 
yeah yeah for sure yeah it was nice seeing this kind of take off as a um a sort of mini indie success story um you can tell there's a lot of love put into the writing and um i think the characters are genuinely sort of fun to be around um kind of like voiced which helps as well yeah it sort of like had a slightly dirk gently-esque vibe to it maybe i don't know it's hard Mm. to exactly put um how uh how to place it totally but yeah it feels british in a way that's not annoying you know it definitely goes into your kind of sort of lovecrafty you know it's sort of supernatural and paranormal stuff in it but it does that without like going fully into it you know often i find you know again lovecrafty people are a bit tiresome aren't they you're like oh fucking <laughs> i fucking get it with you. your octopuses and your fucking infinite <laughs> abyss of madness and all that bullshit this kind of has enough of it it has enough of it for the story to work but it doesn't go full into it it like definitely avoids a lot of um major potholes this one pitfalls potholes pitfalls one of the two one's got more of a kind of platforming game energy of those two i'd say <laughs> but um yeah um so yeah uh, so on matthew's shit list then we've got um a uh, new generation of point and click adventures and lovecraft people those are on matthew's <laughs> shit list now I will, um, I, you know what i mean it's just lovecrafty people they're always a little bit like oh yeah we get it you know you're <laughs> flirting with madness I, <laughs> I will say that earlier in this very episode i brought up how dragon's dogma has an infinite abyss of madness in it and you've just basically <laughs> thrown me right under the bus it's unbelievable well no because you, you know you well, I, <laughs> I am not a Lovecraft I take it, I, I know firsthand you are not like a Lovecraft North person. So. <laughs> oh, amazing. A uh, sequence of words that's never come up on this podcast before. Um, so, Joe, did you play these? These were like something that might have crossed your path. You, I don't you know. know what? I haven't. And in my brain, they were exactly the same thing as the Blackwell series um, by YGI <laughs> Games, but they're not. So, no, I haven't played them. Um but yeah, they they do sound right up my street. Actually, I I, I had need to familiarise myself with them. Okay, great. So my third pick. I feel like um, considering Joe's uh, rule on Devolver, I've broken it by having an Annapurna game here. But um, Gorogoro is my third pick. Um, I wanted to pick this just because there is still nothing quite like it. And when I was weighing up games for this uh, episode, I downloaded this again on my iPad. This is the perfect iPad game, I think. And then I played like an hour of it almost effortlessly and enough time has passed. I forgot how to solve the puzzles. So, um, and I just think this, this game is just exquisite. So, um, yeah, this is basically a game where you're sliding tiles around on this grid of four, um, to essentially find new bits in the environment to continue the story. And what I mean by that is, um, you'll see kind of like shapes loop between two tiles, then realize you can place one tile on top of another in order to form a larger shape that then forms a new scene where the character moves into it. Really fucking hard to explain this. When you see it, you'll kind of know it. But like it's um this storybooky visual style where it's just about like this sort of shape association and poking around the environment. A bit of point and click adventure kind of vibe to it as well. Um, with this beautiful music. So uh yeah, I I think it was like originally like an IGF breakout, if I believe. Um I believe. So uh yes, it's um uh it's it's still phenomenal and uh quite tricky but not that long i understand it's on like switch as well and maybe some other formats but it probably worked quite well on pc but i think like it, when it comes to sort of indie games i've played on ipad and like you know mobile gaming is like a big part of you know pl- playing indie games some of them don't necessarily translate onto consoles and um some are built very specifically for a touchscreen uh, system this is like up there with like ftl for me as like a, a perfect ipad game mm-hmm. so um joe did you play this one i imagine you did yeah i absolutely loved it and and this is was was this annapurna's this can't be their first game 
but it it's like early it's like 2017 yeah it feels it feels like it started to set that tone of essentially if annapurna publish it i will play it um i think it's it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful it's it's kind of uh it's not quite on the same romance level as uh uh last what is it last story sorry you're you're meeting your wife game <laughs> Oh yeah, last, last story. story. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, very early on in my relationship with my now fiance, we played this together, and it's it has a very special place in my heart for that. It's um, it's oh. like it's a it's a very like pleasant game to play, just lazily, um, and yeah, just just a really good, cool, really cool idea, but uh, kind of drawn out across just the exact amount of time that you want that idea to exist like it doesn't outstay its welcome but it does lots of things with it i think it's it's very very cool yeah like um i understand this is in development for years and years so jason roberts is a developer and then like um had run out of money at a certain point and then um annapurna then sort of like uh stepped in and it was this was one of its first published games according to wikipedia joe so uh Ooh. that would kind of line up um there's definitely an element where, like, I got to a point in the story where I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, so I'm just, like, I'm just smashing the screen with my finger hoping to find something. And it's, like, exposing myself as a dummy I truly am. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, co- I'm comfortable with that. But I still uh, I still adore it. So, um, Matthew, is this one you played? Yeah, I did. I, I, I liked it. I think I'm a little cooler on it, just because I, I, like, narratively, it's a little bit la-di-da for me. Um, you know? And it has got that that, that air of it. Where I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to put my hand up and say some of this, like I don't really gel with, or or, or like the the aesthetic of it isn't necessarily for me. But yeah, mechanically, like super smart. I guess like part of me did wonder at the times if it was a little bit too like trial and error. Like I didn't necessarily get that like, you could just sort of poke away at it, and there's only like you know a minimal number of things that could happen or could change. So if you just pour away at it like a dumb ape, you will eventually get there. Um, which I don't know if that's like a flaw of it, but um... I, I don't think it is because it is the, there is like a logic to how it works that you can sort of understand. Yeah. It just becomes more obtuse, I would say, and you kind of have to go down that path with it, you know. Mm. But yeah. uh, you know, I, I definitely uh, I respect everyone else's love for it. Is my diplomatic response? <laughs> but it's a bit lardy, dar. Very good. It's a, sorry, I don't mean to come over too edge with that, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's all good. Um, <laughs> So what's your third pick, Joe? My third pick is Towerfall Ascension, which improbably started life as an Ouya exclusive <laughs> and then became I genuine I this is this is spice, but I genuinely think this is one of the best platformers ever made while never being a platformer. Like the mm. feel of it is so perfect. It's a it's a primarily it is a multiplayer 2D bow and arrow combat game. You know, ten a penny in these parts, um, but it's <laughs> it has this really neat cons- uh, conceit of every uh, every stage that you play on is wraparound in the way that the original Super Mario Bros is. So if you go off the left side of the screen, you come back on the right side of the screen, and that also applies to your arrows. So it leads to these wonderful moments of four player matches, really frenetic. It's essentially one hit kill combat um, in most regards, and you'll start off when you first start playing with people you'll be sort of just bouncing from platform to platform trying to get a pot shot has a really nice um level of targeting to the arrows they will generally hew towards the person you fired them at but they're not sort of homing they just they kind of follow the arc in a really pleasing way uh, that feels natural but means that you're not sort of completely lost on how to shoot someone all the time um 
and uh, and so you'll start off by kind of having these little pit, pitted bits of combat. They'll be over in about thirty seconds, and an hour later, everyone will be going for power ups, finding different arrow types, firing in wild directions away from people to get it off the map and on the other side of the map. And you, like, it turns into this like wild physics experiment amongst four people trying to kill each other desperately. Um, and I, I just think it's like it's it's one of the best multiplayer games I've ever played. We played it almost every lunchtime for about a year and a half um, while I was on O&M and OXM. And uh, to the point where one of the um, IT guys built uh, a blog that would automatically upload GIFs we've saved of it to, to it every day <laughs> with like showing off our greatest kills. Um, it, it, it's just <laughs> like a truly magnificent creation. And it's, it's made by uh, Maddie Thorson, who went on to create Celeste, which actually did use that like fundamental platforming idea in, a, in a, an actual platformer. So I think it kind of it has a legacy beyond the game itself as well that I think is really interesting. It's a very cool thing. I think this is like maybe up there with like Nidhogg. It's like a, the, mm-hmm. the definitive modern party game. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, yeah, that's kind of where it stands. It's like there's no... No evening among friends that won't be improved by um by playing this. Um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely like again, kind of sort of early tens sort of um vibes mm-hmm. to this. Like I remember playing this a lot in like 2014 kind of time, but yeah, good stuff. Um, Matthew, did you partake in the uh, office um, playing uh, of this, or were you just kind of like looking on as, huffily? Not as much as the others. Um, I, I associate this game a tiny bit with me being very stressed at my desk. <laughs> And hearing everyone else roaring with joy while I was basically having a, a continued one-year <laughs> breakdown. Uh, <laughs> so it's just what you want when you're like, ah, oh, lunch. The one time where my, like, ass doesn't belong to Nintendo. And then it's just played out to this cacophony of, of oh, oh, ah, you know, as, uh, as is always the way. Sorry, so, mate. Uh, no, that's fine. All, all part of it um yeah i'm pleased the joy it brought to the office you know it's always nice where yeah a multiplayer game kind of gets its claws into everyone mm-hmm. um yeah just a really like classic easy to pick up kind of so, i don't even know if it's hard to master particularly like there's not a huge amount you can do but it almost the 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 limited moves you have and what sophisticated things you can do with them it's very very easy to quickly be pulling off some quite rad shit in this game yeah it has this um, it has a really deft sense of like how much to complicate things so arrow types generally are pretty simple you know you have ones that fly truer or you have ones that my favorite is one that like lands and leaves behind a packet of or like a layer of brambles that will deal damage if someone lands on them so you're kind of making bits of the map impassable by missing which Mm. i find find really interesting and things like there'll be interactive elements where you can knock a lamp off and if that lamp falls it can kill someone but it never goes beyond it, it never goes to like vampire survivor levels of wild stuff is happening across the screen it's quite it's quite restrained in how much it it adds to the screen i think that's always been i think there's a real a real kind of um elegance of design to that uh, great stuff i should um i should really play celeste at some point i've had it sat there on my switch for such a long time but um yeah what is that do you think that's a proper masterpiece joe would that have would you have considered putting that in your list of selections honestly that's one of those ones where i admire it more than like it i think it's i think it's a really mm. really well put together i'm just not as interested in a platformer about that's so purely about uh, mastery. You know, that it feels like 
I think the platformers I really love tend to be as much about experimentation or, or exploration as they are anything else. And I think Celeste hews a little bit to the sort of super meat boy of things where it's, you know, do it right or die. Uh, and I, you know, I played it through and finished it. I think it's great, but I never got, I never got into it in the same way. Great stuff then. So um, uh, Matthew, what's your third pick? So this is, I'll go back on my previous pick. This is my most la da pick for sure. <laughs> uh, this is Device 6. Um, the Simogo iOS game. Um, have either of you? Played yeah, this, this is no. Great. I, I know. I know. Chris Schilling is like the patron saint of uh, Simogo mm. um, on social <laughs> media, which is a uh, you know, it's a good a good identity to forge. I think so. Um, yeah. I've had this sat on my iPad for such a long time and only ever played like the first few minutes, but it seemed very stylish. Yeah, so it's like a like an interactive novel in the most literal sense, in that you are reading it almost like an ebook, but the twist is that the text warps and flows to kind of reflect the pace and direction of the story so if you go downstairs you know the lines literally form stairs if you turn a corner the text turns 90 degrees and you have to twist your iphone or ipad to carry on reading so it makes amazing use of the portability of of a mobile device in that you're basically flipping this thing around and in a couple of puzzles having to do slightly weirder stuff with it um there's almost a sing well not almost there is like a sing level of ingenuity to this in that how sing used the ds in another code hotel dusk or whatever where they had real fun with like every unique feature of that device i think samogo have a pretty you know a pretty good go of that with this in terms of it's a uniquely portable experience and specifically a device that you can move around in your hands to sort of follow the story so that's that's one layer of like oh this is really cool just from like a sort of typographical point of view and then embedded in it are puzzles which are hidden in sort of like interactive gadgets that appear as illustrations in the story and their solutions are cryptically hidden in the text or in sound effects that play at certain points or in images that kind of change as you scroll past them again a bit like Goragoa, slightly hard to describe once you see it you're like oh i get this everything you need is like buried in the story and it's it's about kind of excavating what the game wants you to do from this text while also enjoying the story and then it's all held together with this just incredible sense of style like it's riffs very heavily on kind of surreal 60s television Mm. like the prisoner uh, the Avengers, you know, I guess similar things that Deathloop would go on to drink from. Very similar kind of slightly out there, pop arty kind of very sort of like cool design, jazzy soundtrack. It sort of feels like a thing, like the game feels like a thing that exists within this world. Like it's all a bit meta, like what you're doing and how your play experience folds into the story itself. It's very clever. I mean, probably all done in like three, four hours. Um, it's not like massively long, depending on how stumped you get, but just a really complete, coherent, strange puzzle thing. Yeah, I, I've actually heard people liken this to um, House of Leaves, which I know that you're a fan of. Mm, yeah, it's like it's it's got a similar sort of yeah. Exploring the page is is a big part of it. While that may sound a bit lardy da, it is. Um, it's just very entertaining because it's kind of you know written in the language of like mystery and spy fiction. So it's it's very sort of accessible on the surface, I'd say, and and kind of rips along at a good old pace. Yeah, is this your favourite of the Smoko games, Matthew? 
Oh, God, I've completely forgotten the name of their last one. Sayonara Wild Hearts. It's between those two. I mean, Year Walk is amazing, but it's also, like, creepy as fuck and kind of upsets me. So, from a pure pleasure point of view, this is maybe a bit more one and done than Sayonara Wild Hearts. But they're an awesome studio. I, I, I absolutely love the stuff they make. It's so. wild that that's a studio that's made those three games. Like, they're such a bizarre, yeah. <laughs> like, track record. It's amazing. This has obviously a lot more in common with mm. Yearwalk in terms of, like, the puzzle sort of design. And, like, they want to make something that feels very bespoke to the hardware, which, like, Yearwalk, you know, especially if you play the Yearwalk, uh, like, Wii U version, which they they made... Um, like a lot of interesting changes to to really fit it to i think they're very um very kind of careful about that and i'm i i'm always drawn to developers who kind of go all in on something you know it's something that our friend rod broadbent of daka daco who made scram kitty on wii u was always a huge advocate of and i i bring that up because i'm pretty sure he voices one of the characters in device six i think they all come from a similar pool of um you know developers who love they share a sensibility in that they really like want to build for specific hardware and that's something they really really value and i, I think that that's just really a really cool thing you should get rod broadbent mm. on this show he'd be amazing oh he is yeah he's a, he's a fascinating bloke so my uh, fourth pick is the one i'm probably most excited to talk about which is um house of the dying sun so this is a essentially like a revival of the x-wing style of game before star wars squadrons happened it's kind of like um one part sort of like in a spaceship cockpit dogfighting simulator and uh, sort of um uh, take destroying sort of specific targets that sort of thing in a series of campaign missions but it also has like a tactical layer where you can pause the game and basically command a fleet in like the the kind of like midst of battle so a really interesting combination of stuff and you can even jump into the different fighters in order to um strategically take the edge you don't have to engage that tactical area if you don't want to you can use um buttons on the controller to like uh basically just like give commands um in real time um and you can just play it like uh it's somewhere between like an x like an x-wing and a, a star fox in terms of complexity like you could definitely play this on a gamepad um, but it does also uh, feature like flight stick uh, support and um, you can even play it in VR as well. Oh. I've not tried it in VR, but um, I got obsessed with this about six years ago when it released. It's by a developer called Mike Tipple, who used to work at Bungie and um, Pandemic. I, I think the studio was called Marauder Interactive. I think this is the only thing they made. And I was just really fond of it. It's like a kind of long time X-Wing fan. And at a time where there weren't like loads of games like this about, it was nice to see a different spin on it. And the tactical layer was a genuinely new and different thing. And what I really love about it is that it's got a variety of different difficulty settings. So you can smash through the campaign, no problem. It won't take you longer than like three or four hours. But then if you want to go and replay it and get different kind of like um, rewards for doing so, um, there's loads of like uh, incentive to do so, I would say. So um, yeah, House of the Dying Sun. It's always like five dollars in a Steam sale or four pound forty or something. So I'd recommend getting it for that if you can. It's PC only, which may explain why it didn't quite break out. But have hmm. either of you played this game? Uh, I realised very quickly as you started speaking that I had absolutely no idea what this was. I thought this was um, <laughs> uh, is it Race the Sun or Chase the Sun or something like that it was that which was kind of another indie game that people loved a few years ago um yeah so this sounds brilliant and i had no idea it existed the two sides of the game when you say like you know 
they can kind of impact each other can you can you play either fully exclusively or like is is there you know is it very much like a cockpit fighter game first or could you just play the tactical level of it um you, i don't think you i've never tried to play it just a tactical layer of it i've only ever played it as like at most kind of 20 percent tactical to 80 percent right just playing in cockpit i think you, you because of the difficulty settings you can definitely just play it in that way if you want to and not bother with it like i say because you can um input commands from your ship in real time you don't have to engage that layer if you don't want to but if you get to the higher difficulty settings you will need to think a bit more about what the rest of your fleet is doing i would say um luckily i um i like positive reinforcement so i've only ever really played the lower difficulty settings in this but um <laughs> i really love it and it's it's like uh, the missions are a bit briefer than playing something like um squadrons it's uh yeah i i think it's really cool it's got a very simple kind of visual style but a really effective one um the music's by this guy who like i'd i'd he- only heard of because he'd done a he'd done like a instrumental recreation of the um john murphy soundtrack for sunshine so he was kind of like a, one of those soundcloud kind of like does space music kind of um uh, composers right. and so they tracked him down i, I think they, they seemed the developer tracked him down and then just um hired them to make the music for this and you get something that's quite like battle starry i would say um what i really liked i booted up this morning to just give it another go and there was like um there's like a 70s uh, sci-fi paperback artwork on this uh, steam page for it which i thought was really cool and uh, it just generally has lovely fonts as well i love some good fonts and the, the premise <laughs> is super simple it's like the emperor is dead and like there's these four traitorous lords 14 traitorous lords you're basically tracking down um that's where the um that's the basis of each campaign mission so yeah house of the dying sun it's uh it's good love to blow up a traitorous lord <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I thought well, it's kind of like a more of a heart pick, but um, critics did like it at the time. It didn't get like loads of attention, but it got a bit of attention. So uh, yeah, yeah, there it is. Almost sounds a tiny bit like sort of it, when you're playing like Dynasty Warriors or Warriors games. You're obviously focusing on, focusing on yourself, but then it has this sort of like arcade tactical top layer to it, where you're also like guiding other players around the map and stuff, which yeah. can aid you in the long run. Yeah, it doesn't have Lou Boo in it. I will say that. But, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> for not shame frankly um not one of the traitorous lords sadly um but yeah that's uh <laughs> yeah uh, that that might be a good comparison when people see it, it's like it's relatively light it's not super intensive managing that stuff yeah. like it's just um but it's just another layer to think about the def- the, the cockpit sort of like um flight simulation stuff definitely comes first um guns feel really nice i imagine this would be good in vr but um i'm not prepared to uh, t- to plug all the cables in and find out that can be a patreon stretch goal two grand maybe let's see how that goes um okay so what's your stop, fourth pick stop Joe? adding self-serving patreon <laughs> stretch goals which are just things you should be doing you're like if we reach a, uh, one and a half grand i'll have a delicious roast dinner <laughs> and you're like, well, no one benefits from that <laughs> no that's true okay this is going great isn't it uh so what's your fourth picture uh a question of etiquette. Sorcery is a series of four games that are effectively one long story. Am I allowed yeah. all four sorcery games, or do I have to pick one of them? You could go with all four, and then you can explain why one in particular stands out okay. for you. Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah, let's we'll do that. do that. So Sorcery is by Inkle, who are one of those developers where I will basically play anything they release. Um, Catherine, last time around, chose Heaven's Vault, which I think is probably for me, the standout um, game they've made just in terms of its like sheer scale of, of thinking. But Sorcery was one of their earliest projects and is effectively a recreation on mobile of um, an old series of choose-your-own-adventure or fighting fantasy books. I can't remember which series it was a part of. Sorcery. 
It, well, was it just called the sorcery books? Uh, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah, I didn't know if they were part of a wider thing. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe they were. Were they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so sorcery is is a very like simple sort of you are an adventurer uh, and there is a mad king go and kill him narrative, um, and the way these games work is they effectively take the original text but they place it over. Um, a, a sort of interactive map that you move across, really beautifully created um, sort of uh, landscapes that you you move you move a little sort of playing piece across, effectively, um, and it's it's a text adventure in essence, but with little additions they've made. Um, so there's a spell casting system that's done by you pull like letters out of the stars, and so like. I think it's like the, a fireball is find F-O-F in the stars and that creates a fireball spell. Um, and anytime you can cast a spell, you'll be given this sort of letter cloud that you have to pull letters out of. So you'll only be able to choose from a certain amount of spells depending on the stars above you, etc., etc. Um, it has like a little gambling minigame built in. It has this kind of strange again sort of like a gambling based combat system where you have a certain amount of stamina and you're wagering how much of your bar you want to use versus the enemy's bar um which is quite interesting and it basically uses these systems across four games to tell one long story but it, the scale to which the connections and the decisions you make in that story go is ridiculous like the the sheer amount of effect you can have on that story as you go um is kind of crazy and you you won't realize how much of an effect you're having on the end in the early games until you get there there'll be characters that you've met three games ago um reappearing effectively and so it's always the same locations but the the people you meet in them and the the way your character reacts to stuff can be completely different um based on each playthrough Mm. um and it gets more and more mechanically bizarre as time goes on. The first one is pretty straightforward, like go from here to here and do the stuff. The second one is set in a much bigger city, but with this time loop mechanic where you can effectively play the game forever until you've done all the stuff you want to do before getting to the end. Um, the fourth one, just to skip forward, is like a, a sort of magical castle with this whole mechanic built around those spells we were talking around. And then the third one, which is my favorite, has this wild idea of like there are a series of lighthouses across this across this vast landscape and you're traveling across it and it's essentially a sort of post-apocalyptic space and then when you get into a lighthouse and turn it on it shines a a physical swathe of light across uh sections of the map and those sections are going back in time so you're point physically mm. pointing lighthouses across the map and creating entirely different spaces, like painting time travel across this. And it builds puzzles around you going back and forth in time in these areas and meeting people and then even getting to like proper sci-fi horror speculative fiction stuff where it's like, what is the implications of bringing people to life and then moving them around and then turning it to the future again and essentially having killed them in new ways um it's really (laughs) grim uh and they're just like there's such in terms of like the kind of choice and consequence mechanics of modern rpgs there really isn't much that i think has touched how far how far ink will go with it in the sorcery games um Mm. i i think they're really really special things i think they're very underplayed um 
They're, they mm. are very mm. cool. Yeah, I, I've always kind of like uh, had my eye on these. They're just on mobile and PC, I mm. think. I don't think there's anywhere else you can play them. Not on Switch, for example. Um, they are, um, uh, Matthew, to answer what your earlier point, they're a spin-off of the uh, Fighting Fantasy series. Mm. So that's where okay, they kind of come right. from. So that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose, like, how exactly have they adapted the source material here then, Joe? Is it like a one-to-one this is what you could pick in the book at the time, so that's what we've put in the game. Or is it like, is there more sort of like um, poetic license taken with how they're adapting um, those If I remember correctly, the core of the story is one-to-one, including like the language used, but they Mm. build way more around it to kind of allow for player interaction and, and, you know, um, like give you this sense of you you having an effect on things. So I think there's a lot added around the edges and I I may be wrong, but I think the endings are significantly extended. I I would have to go and check that for sure. One thing I've missed out as well mm. is they have a really neat way of building in the idea of putting your finger in a page on a fighting fantasy book and flicking forward to see whether you want it. Um, they right. have a rewind mechanic that is effectively you pulling time back to where you want to go. And it is effectively allowing you to make those those decisions in a book so you don't have to do it at any point really i think there's maybe a couple of puzzles that are built around it if i, I may be wrong but um but yeah it's mainly just sort of an, a difficulty mechanic that that is effectively going look we know you could do this in the book so we'll let you do it here too and i think that's a really nice mm. sort of harking back to playing those old games yeah uh, really really cool that's my right. uh, very basic take on this is that this occupies like the most traditional video gamey territory of any Inkle mm. game in that it's a fantasy RPG and I almost prefer them in this space. Like I think they maybe have done like cleverer narrative systems or like weirder sort of tighter little experiments. But I kind of I, I do love their structure, their tone, their intelligence, their attention to detail in a you know, mixed in with these more traditional tropes. And I don't necessarily get the impression that that's left to their own devices. They're obviously taking us in much weirder directions. Mm. But I would I would not be upset if they decided to make something which was, you know, dungeons and dragons and fights and monsters. You know, I, I, I love that they did something so cool in that space. It's funny that it's effectively a licensed game as well. Like, I don't know what the decisions were around that. I wonder if, like, someone went looking for someone to adapt sorcery for modern devices, or whether this was Inkle going, we love these books, let's try it out and see if we can get in touch. But it's it's kind of fascinating as an experiment into how you turn Choose Your Own Adventure into something much, much more fully fully fledged video game-wise. Um, yeah, really, really yeah. cool. There's, there's some really good GC, GDC talks on these as well, where you think AAA studios working in like RPGs, I guess, could learn mm. so much. They could steal so much awesome stuff in these games that they haven't. Like structurally, the way it serves up some of its story, the way they have a, like a, almost a bank of random events that they can bring into play at, at certain places, and the way they kind of think about. Or, or basically hide the fact that they're serving up all this kind of pre-written, kind of predestined stuff, but in a slightly randomised way in places is, is so clever. And you, when you when he talks about it, you're like, oh, I, you could see that you're being like the next step forward in like a Skyrim mm-hmm. or a Fable or something, but no one has done that. So I think you could buy all these in like a, a, a fat bundle as well, if I um, remember correctly. So you can... Um bring the price down a little bit but uh yeah android ios those are the 
probably the places to play those. Mm-hmm. Okay, good stuff. What's your number four, Joe? I mean, Matthew, sorry. What's your number four, Matthew? My number four is 2000 to 1, A Space Felony. Never heard of it. Same. <laughs> I came across this quite randomly. This is made by National Insecurities, who one of the, the game they made after this was in a Humble Bundle a couple of years ago. It was that Once Upon a Crime in a West. Did you ever play that? Hear about this? No, but I'm I'm, no, I'm sensing a I'm sensing a theme in their titling of things. <laughs> they're a small, I think they're Scottish indie collective who work in in the crime mystery space. They make these quite short, like hour long, very sort of cinematic games. They're set they're set in three D worlds or three D modelled. You can kind of sort of explore them. Um, they're right up my street, and I don't know why they're not talked about a bit more because they're very, very stylish. They're very, they've got a, a, a really cin- yeah, like I say, cinematic sensibility, but it's executed very cleverly, to probably to match their like studio size and budget. So, like quite abstracted spaces, you know, it's not going for like photorealism, but it it's very like evocative of the space you need, you know, that you're going to be exploring. So, in this one, uh, two thousand to one. Uh, you've been sent to a space station, very 2001-esque, um, to work out what happened to the crew and why their onboard AI has uh, is not like responding to Earth's kind of instructions. The game it's most like is Tacoma, in that you're going to a space station to work out what happened. Here, it's like a lot more explicitly a murder mystery. Like Tacoma had, you know, the, the mystery of Tacoma is like, what the fuck's going on here? Here you turn up and you basically find all the crew in various crime scenes and have to work out sort of basically like the order of what happened to everyone and, you know, how they died and did they turn on each other or was the AI involved? You know, you have to sort of discover this for yourself. With this, like, quite sort of minimalist art style, though fully 3D environment that you can explore, it just really conveys, like, the scale of the ship, the function of the ship. The crime scenes themselves are really striking because the astronaut suits are kind of crafted in um, simple colours. So, like, one, like, wears a neon green suit one has like a neon red suit they almost look like mannequins more than people but they're like you discover one has been like ejected out of an airlock with like a rope tied around their neck and they're just sort of like eerily sort of hung in space from this space station and when you see it you're just like oh wow that's like really stark like it's almost as effective as like L.A. Noir with all its millions pumped into photorealism like these crime scenes it like convey something bad has happened just as effectively, which like I, I found very, very striking. You know, I love the, the drama of walking into a crime scene, I think is a really, like, exciting, kind of evocative thing. Um, and this really nails that. And uh, as you go around, you're taking photos of everyone, and then you basically have to question the AI who kind of exists in this sort of spherical core. And as you take photos of, you know, evidence or characters... Uh, they sort of flick up on these TV screens in this room and you can question the AI about those TV screens. You can sort of say, well, what's this about? What happened here? And then if you think the AI is lying, you can then highlight another piece of evidence that kind of um, contradicts it. So it's a bit like, it's like Ace Attorney, but you're putting this AI on trial by collecting information about around its spaceship. It's about an hour long, so very, very simple, very short, set to a soundtrack of classical music. You get, like, the drama of, like, 
exploring this spooky space station to like Moonlight Sonata. It's fucking cool, this game. Like, it's really, really it good. It sounds great. I can't believe I've never heard of it. There's something really surprising about this, Matthew. It's not actually on Steam. If you want to play it, it's only on Humble. It's a DRM free game. Um, yeah, you can get it from Itch. I think it's like a Humble, maybe it's one of their like, uh, like archive of DRM free games. So you can like yeah. just sign up and get access to it. Um, Joe, I think IGN owns Humble, doesn't it? So, um, yes, is that it right? finds uh, if David's yeah. product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can you could probably get this as a freebie. That'd be good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think you can get it on itch for like a pay what you want. Right, right. Thing. So, um, which you obviously should pay because it's 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 interesting. Um, yeah, I, I actually preferred it more to what's called a crime in the West, which is like a Western follow up, which is a bit like the hateful eight in mm. a way it's like what happened in this cabin with full of cowboys right but that's also very cool very similar like they just really sell you on like the fantasy of what you're doing but without all the bells and whistles of like a hundred million pound budget that you might think you need right right i actually think this is better than tacoma in a lot of ways and no one talks about it yeah it looks and sounds really cool so um yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. What a great, uh, great uh, obscure recommendation there. And to think we both laughed at the um, pun titles, thinking what's uh, what's crazy old Matthew Castle come up with this time? <laughs> it's it's a funny. It's, that's a good quirk. Like, that's a good way of like tying your studio's body of work together by like having these slightly naff kind of playing words. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of you know that uh, composer Michael Giacchino or. I don't know how you say his last name. I apologise. Oh, like the Incredibles guy, yeah. right? Um, he or, like loads of his uh, titles for songs are puns, and it feels like he just does it as like, look, no one's actually going to pay attention to the titles if they're called like <laughs> the Overture. So he just gives them really dumb names, and I, I quite respect it. It's uh, it's a fun way oh, to that's do awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah, I like that continuity there between like I don't know the soundtracks for the Incredibles and Rogue One or whatever. Mm. That's uh, that's good. <laughs> Okay, cool. So my final one here really weighed this up because I almost put uh, West of Loathing in here, but I just struggled to really like remember everything about it. It's been such a long time since I played it. Really kind of funny sort of Western game. I may revisit it on Switch and then talk about it on a future one of these. So um, I instead went with, um, I was looking through my PS Vita archive and thought, what did I play on my Vita on the indie um, side? Because feeling slightly guilty after the PS Vita draft that we didn't select that many indies because so many of them are available on Switch now or PC. So um, they didn't seem shiny when we were trying to aggressively win the public vote. Um, I lost that one, of course, <laughs> gutted. Um, but yes, um, so I went with um, uh, two games here, technically, like Joe did with Sorcery. I've gone with Ollie Ollie and Ollie Ollie 2, Welcome to Hollywood. So these games, I'm sure people are familiar with them. They're like um, they're side-scrolling skating games, kind of a mix between playing Tony Hawk's and um, like Trials at the same time. You're kind of like trying to get to the end of a level while being stylish at the same time but there are fail states you can like land on them sort of like red objects which send you off your skateboard and then you have to restart the level but it's like an instant like kind of like load element to it um the second one is definitely better the second one introduces manualing um much like how tony hawk um, would uh, the first game wouldn't have manualing but they would introduce it later on uh, yes yeah, so they did they did that here it also looks a lot nicer the first game is a bit closer to like a flash game in appearance or something you might see on itch um, the second game is um, more elaborate. It has a kind of like uh, sort of Hollywood setting where it takes you onto like basically film sets um, to play through the levels. Um, pulling off tricks is um, is done mostly with the uh, the uh, analog sticks, which works incredibly well. Um, so 
it's kind of like pushing down on the stick to sort of grind and then um you have to tap a button as you land in order to like um safely land with all of your uh sort of like uh, stunts or moves in this game so it's um it's a lot of kind of like careful timing going on you can do perfect versions of all of the different types of stunts by um activating uh, activating the um command at like the last second in order to like um uh yeah rack up the most points and be super stylish um, works incredibly well gets incredibly hard in the second game in particular i know there's been a new one this year but i wanted to give them um uh, a shout out here because i think they really are like perfect to kind of pick up and play games um joe have you played these ones i imagine that you were a bit of an ollie ollie guy but that's you know that's just me I try to preempt your kind of your whole deal here, but, um... <laughs> my whole deal <laughs> I, I i was a a huge skate person so when ollie ollie came along it seemed like a very cool thing to uh, a very cool thing to me so yeah i have i played a lot of ollie ollie i played a bit of ollie ollie too and i've played a shamefully small amount of the new ollie ollie um but i think they are I, I must say, I, I never quite got, like, the full love of these. But I think that's, again, kind of like with Celeste, I'm, I'm far less into the idea of mastery or, like, like speedrunning does nothing for me. That kind of, like, you know, challenge yourself to be as good as you can at one thing rather than just playing through it and enjoying it doesn't get to me quite as much. So I think that's why I haven't, like, truly fallen in love with these. But I, I love that this series, particularly... The, the transition of the series from one game to the other, I like that they keep experimenting with how it should look, but while keeping the base idea in place. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, they are just, they are very pleasant, like, feeling games. They they really nail that, that sort of easygoing, but, you know, lots to it feel in a in a very nice way yeah you can always like pick these up for very cheap they're like available as a combo pack on switch where they play very very nicely assuming you don't have like um uh the joy con drift thing which i imagine would turn this game into a complete fucking nightmare <laughs> since all the stunts are done with the sticks um and so pulling off more elaborate tricks is done by like uh spinning the stick in a certain direction and i'm not always like massive on games that use twin sticks for anything other than moving and aiming that can always be a little bit uh, risky but i think um they make it work here really well and um like you say joe there is like this big skill ceiling but if you do just want to fire through the levels and play it your way and just kind of like um and 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 get slightly better at the game as you go even without unlocking loads of um kind of like fulfilling loads of the secondary objectives you can still enjoy it on that level i would say so yeah i wanted to pick something in my list that was a, a bit more kind of pick up and play a lot of the other stuff i've picked is um is less like that so um ollie ollie gets a shout here uh, matthew do you ever play these ones uh, I've only played a tiny bit of the first one and, and, and didn't really click with it. Not not for any particular problem with it. I just never really put the time in. So, um, But I'm mm. definitely going to... sounds like I need to go back and uh, give this another go. That's fine. Well, uh, despite uh, the reticence of my co-host, I'm forcing this into the Hall of Fame. So um, we come to Joe's fifth and final entry. Yeah, Thumper. Um, a rhythm action game that's, <laughs> that's so unpleasant, its own creators call it a rhythm violence game. Um, which I always really enjoyed. I think Thumper might have like the most indie cred of any indie game I can think of because it was it's co-created by two guys. One like runs an indie collective in Seoul, and the other guy by day worked for Harmonix, and by night is in this like insane band called Lightning Bolt, who refuse to play on stage and always play in the middle of a crowd and wear creepy masks and play incredibly noisy music where you purposely can't hear what they're saying. 
uh, and you kind of get the sense that if you could hear what they're saying, it would be really horrible. Um, it's, uh, they're, they're, I, I really like them. Um, and together they made this game called Thumper, which is uh, a game where you play as a metal space beetle flying endlessly towards a giant face that really reminds me of Willem Dafoe. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's bonkers. It is like a really noisy rhythm action game. Um, with the sort of aesthetic of a like a cosmic roller coaster, but the ways you move around corners or the like bumps you hit along the way form part of the music, and the rhythm action sections are essentially you having to do certain button inputs to make sure that you hit those things correctly as you go along. Um, it's really, really hard, um, but very, very satisfying. Uh, the music is like almost purposely over poweringly unpleasant but like not in a non-melodic way it's just like something really bad is happening in this world um <laughs> and it's it's kind of incredible and it is truly incredible in vr it's I, I i'm not a huge vr guy but i once tried to show this to some people in the office i was like oh let me just show you this i'll, I'll get it started and I'll, I'll stick the headset on and i'll show you and quite genuinely i still am very embarrassed about this I think I sat there for like half an hour just playing it while they watched me and eventually they just tapped me on the shoulder and were like, oh, we're going to go, Joe. We're going we're to go and go to the park. <laughs> it was just me sitting alone in a dark room in the office playing Thumper for another I hour. I thought you were going to say like you shit yourself. Well, you know, <laughs> later after they like, It was so intense. I actually I shit. became a, <laughs> the space beetle. Um, yeah, it's, it's a truly... Uh, like it's a huge sort of sensory experience in VR um, with proper headphones on. I think it's really, really special. Um, very odd. I, this the the kind of company that made it drool. I don't think have made anything since, and I'm not sure whether they plan to or not. But I would love to see what they could come up with because it's it is it is very one of a kind um, and like a really surprising thing. So you can play this one on Switch, but do you think it needs the big TV or like I, a monitor to really get it across? I would say, Joe? as long as you had really good headphones on the Switch, it would still be quite good. I don't know how it would perform. It's quite a nice-looking game, and it really requires... It really needs to be smooth um, to work. So I, I, I wouldn't be able to say, but I think really it's the the audio experience is the, is the most important thing. Um, I would say, I mean, you know, play it on a big TV if you can, but I don't think it would be truly hurt by being unle- on switch unless you were playing it out of the speakers in which case it might might lose a bit of its impact um but yeah mm. it's uh yeah i it's i think it's i think it's kind of kind of amazing as a as a regular game and, and truly amazing as a vr game matthew is a big fan of abrasive unpleasant music <laughs> what, um do you do you have a take on thumper yeah i, I have played it I, I respect it don't particularly like I, I it i can see that <laughs> this music is it's kind of it's pretty far from Randy Newman. Mm. <laughs> I, would, I think if you played this soundtrack to Randy Newman, he'd probably yeah. die. I would, uh, so. I would love to watch you at a lightning bolt gig. It would be, <laughs> it would be so amazing. Um, yeah, they, uh, it would oh. be something. I, I only go to gigs if they've got seating. <laughs> I just think of that uh, Hank Hill meme with the headphones, like uh, you lis- listening to uh, this music, Matthew. But uh, yeah, um, good stuff. Yeah, I can't imagine that band's coming to Bath anytime soon. So um, yeah, good stuff. Um, okay, great. Yeah, I, I've always meant to play this, but um, and definitely ha- I have it on PC, so I should should do it at some point. The fact that it's rhythm violence actually kind of appeals mm. to me. So um, yeah, good stuff. So Matthew, your final entry. What's um, what's number five for you? 
Number five is Unheard, which is a, another detective crime game. This one isn't critically beloved, but it's got a big, overwhelmingly positive reception on Steam. It's just one of these ones which, I don't know, just clicked with a lot of people for whatever reason. It's a detective game where you listen to events around a crime and you have to piece together the solution from what you hear. So you've, you're presented with a top-down map of a crime scene and you can play like the 10 minutes leading up to or each case is different some of them are set like after the crime some lead up and contain the crime and by walking around this 2d map by getting closer to people you can hear what they're saying at any given time and you basically have to eavesdrop on everyone and then keep looping it back and standing in different places to hear other parts of the conversation to try and piece together what's going on and each level like the only the actual solution to it it'll just say like who did the murder or who stole the painting once you found out you just click the person and and then it's done but it's kind of the closest thing to playing the film the conversation that you can get in terms of you can't see any of this stuff you have to sort of work out what's going on from like you may only hear like one half of a phone conversation but then potentially you could walk elsewhere loop back the audio and hear the other half of the conversation sometimes multiple conversation phone conversations are happening so you're trying to work out who's actually talking to who and what makes sense a big kind of foothold that you're you're trying to get is just to what is to put a name to everyone in the level so once you can work out who people what people are called that maybe makes it a bit easier you know it's quite sort of minimalist in its presentation like i said it's like looking at the blueprints top down the voice acting is quite hammy i think this is a chinese studio but the western voice acting is like super over the top they sound more like like sort of pseudo 51 characters or something (laughs) they're all like yelling their dialogue there's a guy (laughs) in it who really sounds like travis touchdown like one of the voice actors which is maybe why i'm making that comparison so it's not particularly subtle but i really like the idea of trying to solve a crime from like layering up the audio and working out like what everything means in context uh, i think that's a really a really cool hook and it's executed about as well as it can be here um not massively long and maybe gets a little silly towards the end but there's there's definitely something here i've never heard of this before it sounds great like is there a law reason or is there like a how do they explain you wandering around behind people but also rewinding time the framing of it is that this this woman's talking to you in an interrogation cell and they have this sort of advanced technology that lets you replay crime scenes and you have a perspective on it like how it works and like what the deal is is kind of part of the story Uh. and that's when i say it gets a a little a little silly like i could almost do without that like the hook of oh this is the future and we have this technology would be Mm. enough um, but they try to explain it in a kind of slightly dumb way. Okay, good stuff. Uh, what's um, what do you recommend playing this one on, Matthew? Well, I played it on PC. I don't know what else is available. I don't know if this is on any other formats. Looks actually. like it's on PS4 as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense on PC because you can kind of you know click around with the mouse. You can also like you can annotate the timeline by typing in notes, which maybe makes a bit more sense on a keyboard. Oh yeah. So yeah. you can say like like I know for sh- you know just to remind yourself because you you know it. it the whole thing is it's giving you so much information it's like impossible to hold it all in your head so you're trying to make notes in the world of like well this guy definitely didn't do this or this guy did that or whatever so yeah pc i'd say okay great stuff well uh, i've um 
uh, put that on my wish list now, so I'm going to pick that up for sure. Sounds really cool. So we've come to the end of the episode. That was uh, the fun question mark. Yeah, it was good. Um, so <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us as ever. Um, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the uh, coming on another episode. I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Oh. Where can people find your stuff on the internet? They can find me on IGN.com. Uh, I run the news team, and that's nice. Uh, I also make a horrific <laughs> podcast called Regular Features that I highly recommend you listen to, but don't tell anyone you listen to. And uh, I'm on Twitter at 2 plus 2 is Joe. <laughs> Lovely. I love that you refer to yourself as a podcast garbage year. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's like uh, such a wonderful sequence of words. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. Okay, great. So uh, now we have a fucking long list of stuff that we do. So first of all, Patreon. Patreon.com slash backpagepod. Um, you can back us at the £4.50 tier. And later this month, you will unlock uh, Japanese Crime Fiction 101. You can also listen to our best boss battles episode and there's a whole roadmap there of um what's coming up for xl tier members so that's really exciting a max Payne related episode coming next week that'll be fun Backpage pod on twitter if you want to tweet at us Backpagegames at gmail.com if you want to email us and then there's a discord that you can find on twitter as well so fucking loads of stuff quite hard to join it up to be honest um maybe the stretch goal should be hiring a community manager i don't know but um yes thank you very much for listening we'll be back next week goodbye Bye.